Hello, everyone. My name is Lauren Consul. I'm an attorney here at the New York Prosecutors Training Institute. And today I have District Attorney Todd Casella with me here to discuss DWI cases and how you can make your case better. DA Casella, before we get started, can you just tell me a little bit about your background? Certainly. So I am the District Attorney of Yates County. I've been doing this for four and a half years now. And before that, I was an assistant district attorney in Steuben County for five years and ran all over Hell's Half Acre trying DWIs and loved every minute of it. So I've gotten to do a lot of these when I was an ADA and not as many since I've been the DA, but they've always been my favorite type of case to try. I've always just loved doing DWI cases. And we get a fair amount, but not as many here as I did in Steuben County. But we've had some recently that have made me rethink the way I approach them, the way law enforcement approaches them, and has more to do with what I'm categorizing as, to make it politically correct, the unconventional DWI, but what you and I all know as the shit show DWI. And they come in all shapes, forms, and sizes. And so that's kind of what prompted me to reach out to, to Lauren and Stop DWI New York about putting together a training in this podcast on how to you know, better approach DWIs, even when they're not a shit show, because even a normal DWI can become an absolute mess in a hurry. Absolutely. And then I've also seen the reverse where you think that you have a fantastic case with a lot of great evidence, and then most of it gets suppressed, or you find out it's not such great evidence, or it's unreliable, or your witness has a serious past that you're going to have to contend with. So I think there's a lot of ways that this can go sideways in addition to the traditional you know, refusals and things like that. So one quick caveat for everyone listening is that we are going to focus on the alcohol DWI. I know that colloquially, a lot of times we do sort of lump in, we just say DWI drugs instead of DWAI drugs. So here we're going to be focusing on the alcohol DWI because there are a lot of additional complications when we get outside of the alcohol realm and into other drugs. So let's jump into it and talk about some of the things that you can do to make your case better. Sure. So, I mean, a case that looks like garbage in the beginning can turn out to be really good, a really strong case if you do some of these things. And a case that looks really good on paper can turn out to be garbage, even if you do some of these things. So, you know, my approach on anything is prepare for the worst, and that way you're ready for whatever happens. So when you look at like your standard DWI, the way we approach and the way law enforcement approaches and the way we size up a DWI is conventionally, what's the test? How do they do on the standardized field sobriety tests? How good's our stop? What type of admissions the defendant make? And pretty much any one of those things can be subject to suppression or perhaps an adverse inference if things aren't done right. And so some of the things that can go wrong is, you know, your breath test can get thrown out. Uh, refusal warnings weren't read correctly. You have issues with your breath test operator not doing an appropriate observation period, instrument issues. Credibility issues with your witnesses, you know, repeal of 50A, discovery reform, and all these disciplinary records that are coming out, you're going to be dealing with these things more. So really the idea is to try and prop up your witnesses with more evidence than just those things. Because if that's all you're going to trial with in a DWI, 
you got less than a 50% chance of winning. If that's all you're relying on. Oh, they failed SFSTs. He didn't turn his blinker on when he turned. Then he was a one-two on the test. You, you don't have a great chance on that because you don't have enough. And, and if those things get suppressed, what are you left with? If your SFSTs weren't administered properly, if your officer is not strong on them, doesn't know how many inches from the side the hand needs to move before it counts as a clue, can't really articulate the horizontal gaze nystagmus test well, didn't make good notes on the one leg stand. You know, there are so many clues within each of these tests that your officers may not be looking for. And if they don't do it right and they don't know when they can properly mark somebody off for it, their credibility is going to be tanked on the stand. And that comes down to two things. One, you as the prosecutor prepping that witness, asking them those questions. Hey, you marked him from raising his hands on the side on the walk and turn. How far did you raise him? Oh, I don't know. Well, that's a problem, especially if you don't have body cam to show it. And then follow up with, well, how far does he have to move his hands before you could mark that? And see if they know, because I guarantee you, seven out of 10 times, they're going to scratch their head and say, I don't know, and they'll want you to tell them. Don't. Refer them to the manual and have them review it. Like, they need to know this, because a good defense attorney is going to. So all those things go away, and then what do you have? You've got 1192.3 with maybe some traffic charges, and you don't have a refusal charge to your jury. You can't beat that drum that he refused or she refused because they knew the evidence was going to support their guilt of the charge. So if you lose all that stuff in a case where they consented, is your case toasted? And I don't think it is. If you have other evidence, if you've asked your officer other questions, and if they've done a good job. And what you have to understand is law enforcement is not going to just do these things for you automatically. It takes time to get police officers trained to do a little more. And that typically happens in the context of hearing prep and trial prep and losing cases. You're going to lose. And sometimes it takes losing for them to learn and for you to learn what other evidence is out there. And that's really how I kind of came up with these things. So I can just interject for one second. Probably, in my opinion, when we do cross-training with prosecutors and police, I think one of the most important things on top of the relationship building that you were talking about is also that mutual assistance and mutual training component where you know, the officers tell you what they're seeing on the street and what happened, and you tell them what you need them to do in order to make this case a solid case. Also, the whole idea of, you know, don't stop when you have enough because you never know what you're going to lose. So don't forget, observations are one of the most important things I think that you can get. And you often really do need to prompt your officers, especially if they're new, to get those little details and nuggets of information that will really help paint your picture and make your case. Absolutely. And it starts early. You know, if you're in an office where all you're doing is DWIs, right, and those are the only type of case you have, you should be talking to your officers early and often about cases, about what's going on. Sometimes the paperwork is not going to be clear why they stopped. And especially now in the age of discovery reform, you're going to get confronted by defense attorneys sooner. And I'm sure you are about, well, this case is garbage. You know, the stop's bad. And it may look like it's at least unclear 
from the paperwork as to why they stopped them. I have one agency, they don't do a narrative. I get an arrest report with like seven lines that summarizes their actions. I get the SFST note card and the bill particulars. There's no narrative. And if you're like me, you need the narrative, right? That's how you're going to structure your questions for witness prep and for hearing prep and trial prep. And without that, you're kind of forced to call them and say, can you just walk me through what you did? And you know what? That's not a bad thing to do in any event. Walk me through what happened. Get the details that aren't in there because they can't write it all. And if they have body cam, that's great. But if they don't, you need to make those calls. And we should all be able to size up those ones that are going to go most likely to a trial. Does this person have a CDL license? It doesn't matter what the test is. They're probably going to ask for a trial because they're out of a job if they're convicted or any other person who has an employment that is in jeopardy because of the DWI. or they're looking at their fifth DWI, even though it's a misdemeanor in a lifetime, and they're looking at a permit revocation. Hey, this is one that's probably going to go to trial. They've got nothing to lose. Isolate those, triage those ones, and put in that extra work on them right up front, because you're going to know early on if it's going to go. So observations are key. I mean, even with just going through SFSTs, like I said, there are 20 or 30 clues in addition to the ones that are documented on a bill of particulars. A lot of times officers won't put, you know, put the foot down. At what point? At three seconds, at seven seconds, at 10 seconds? How many times did they put their foot down? When they started recounting, where did they recount? Did they restart to one or did they pick up where they left off? There's a lot of little detail that you're not necessarily going to get in the greater context of your SFSTs. Um, and I think in the abstract, those details sound unimportant and almost like overkill, but the reality is, is especially in a DWI case without a crash, you need to distinguish this person as a dangerous driver that is different from your jury. So those little details can really make a difference. You know, not many people who are not alcoholics drive around, you know, with multiple empty handles of vodka in their vehicle. If your officers aren't looking for those things and taking those photos or, you know, bagging that evidence, you're not going to have it for your case. Right. And I, you know, I love open containers in a car. I, I've long asked police to seize all the empties in the car because I want to bring it in and drop it on a table in front of a jury because I think it would be such strong evidence. They never do it. It always just gets recycled or dropped in a, a bin somewhere. And, and I've always asked for it. I want it. I want to bring that in and show it to a jury. It's a great aid. They don't always do it. But if they know you want it and you're looking for that case, you know, they might do it. They might catch some heat from their sergeant or their evidence pack who's got to process all these dirty bottles and cans in. But you know, you got to look at that because it may be that's the best piece of evidence you have when you get to trial is the six empty cans in the back of the car out of the 18 pack that's missing six beers. You know, that's powerful evidence. I love, you know, looking for receipts, shopping bags, takeout food, you know, figuring out where the person was coming from can lead you down a road to a tremendous amount of evidence that could be supportive. You know, why is the person going to Taco Bell at 2.30 in the morning? because they're drunk or intoxicated and they got hungry. You know, it's an obvious thing. Well, I have one where the guy went to Taco Bell and he's got like sauce and stuff all over his face. That's a great little detail that 
you know, a sober person is going to wipe that stuff off their face. You know, they're going to wait till they get home or, they're gonna, you know, it's just little things that you can use. But it really comes down to your officer being able to describe what they're seeing. Body cams are great. But you're not always going to have them or they're not always going to capture everything. They may not turn on right away. And preparing your officer to articulate what they saw is huge. Some offices, I, I don't know, uh, I would hope they could, but I'm sure they're out there, don't have the ability to even play the body cam for a jury or a meaningful way to do that. So you've got body cam, that's great. How are you going to publish it to a jury? It may not be so easy. So making sure they can articulate it is really a big part of it. And if you know where they were coming from, you now have other people to talk to. And in my opinion, and I'm sure others would agree, maybe some would disagree, the best witness in a DWI is not a cop. It's a civilian. Because who is a civilian? They are your jurors. And if a civilian, much like your juror, without any specialized training in DWIs or law enforcement says that person was intoxicated or drunk, you're done. That's, that's your case. You can do a DWI trial without even calling a police officer, in my opinion. Again, some could disagree. I wouldn't advise it. But you could because your jury's going to relate to that person as long as they don't have credibility issues. So receipts, shopping bags, food in the car. Where do they come from? Go there, find witnesses. Make sure your officers know that. Hopefully they'll do it. They may be asking a lot or they may think you're asking a lot. You may get accused like I have of wanting a case on a silver platter, but should we demand less? I don't think we should. So those are some of like the little things that I think that can can really make a difference and there's a lot more. I think your civilian witnesses can also be a great way to sort of subconsciously take away that idea that law enforcement is just out looking, you know, to entrap people for drunk driving or whatever else the case may be, given, you know, the current tenor of society and whatnot. So I think when you have those civilian witnesses, you can get rid of a lot of the things I've had, even on appeal, I've had defense attorneys try you know, to make suggestions and just throw out little, you know, catchphrases and bits that really have nothing to do with the case, but they might distract the jury. So if you can sort of bring it back to center with your civilians, I think that can be really helpful. And as the DA said, they're incredibly relatable, whereas yeah. police officers really aren't if you're not from a law enforcement family or community. Exactly. And, you know, if you're lucky enough that it's a civilian who called 911, those are great because, you know, they saw something that was so bad that they went and did something that most people don't do. And they called 911. They actually called the police because they felt this person could hurt themselves or somebody else, somebody else. And, and that's now really they don't do. They don't want to do, especially nowadays, because they know their information is going to be turned over in discovery. Right. So it's it makes them an extremely powerful witness. But you can still find ones that hey, they, they didn't. And hey. You may be finding witnesses who are going to give you material that is not favorable to your case. Don't ignore it. Remember your obligations under Brady. If that witness says, yeah, we saw him, he was here, he seemed fine. You don't get to bury that. That's a non-law enforcement witness with evidence relevant to the charges or a defense against. You have to turn that over under 245.20. You have to turn that over under Brady. So be aware that you may find things that you don't like, and that's okay. Because you know what? You want to know that. Because if you can find it, the defense attorney can find it. Would you rather be ambushed at trial 
Or would you rather know three weeks after the arrest that the case is, is garbage and you're not going to be able to prove it? And then you move on and you don't waste energy on that because, hey, you got six people, don't know this guy said he looked fine. And you're going to size it up from there. And one question, one of my better DWI police officers got really hung up on that you should be prepping every cop with, not even in anticipation of a case, just ask them randomly, ask them to tell you the difference between intoxicated and impaired in, in the context of a DWI, alcohol, not drugs. And don't ask them to give you an answer to say, just think about it. Next time I see you, let me know what you think about that, because I saw a really solid guy get really hemmed up with it and he couldn't articulate it because he hadn't thought about the question. And it's a fair question for a defense attorney to ask. And a lot of this stuff is prepping your police officers. So make sure you're asking them those questions that you've seen others get stumped on. This is one that really stuck out to me. And I think, too, that we need to remember that just because police officers are trained law enforcement professionals, they are not attorneys. They are not as comfortable as prosecutors are, as judges are, as defense attorneys are in the courtroom. They are used to, you know, doing their job. And some of the best, best road patrol officers really do just clam up on the stand because it's a totally foreign and uncomfortable adversarial position to be in. We are used to it. It's second nature. Many of us thrive on it. But your, you know, your police officers might not. Some of them may, but a lot of them may not. And they may also not appreciate um, why we're asking for some of the things that we are asking with such particularity. So a little bit of explanation, I think, and discussion can really go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think letting them know that this isn't you being demanding. This is yeah. you trying to protect them from a really uncomfortable cross-examination and protect their reputation and their integrity. When they know and they really believe trust you and that that's where you're coming from, that you're looking out for them. This isn't about you and your conviction rate, that you're doing this because you want them to do well. Because let's face it, even guys that are seasoned, I've got one guy who's such a solid DWI officer. He's terrified of this one defense attorney. I'm like, why? He's really not that good. But like 10 years ago, the guy kicked his teeth in and he still hasn't gotten over it. And he prepares like mad on it. But he's not a guy you would think would be nervous about having to testify. But he is. So just because they put on a strong front because that's their job, don't take for granted that they may be just as nervous as you are. You know, this may be the first time they've testified in two years or three years, or they had a bad experience because somebody didn't prep them. And if they know you're coming from a good place of wanting to help them, and you build that over many cases of working with them, not just in one instance, you demand all this stuff and, you know, they're going to believe you. You show that, I mean, it pays dividends and they're going to trust you and they're going to work their tails off. So, because they know you are. And that's really what matters. If they know you're working hard, they're going to work hard. But if they think that you're just asking them to do everything and you're not doing anything, yeah, that's not going to go over so long. So, the first thing, you know, we kind of covered like what would be a normally a good case that goes to hell. What about a case that just starts off in hell? So, uh, <laughs> so you know, I got a standard stop some VTL violation, but the defendant refuses the standardized field sobriety test, won't take a PBT, won't take a breath test. So these can be tough cases, particularly if your officer is not making observations. So I had one of these where the defendant would only say, I don't know my rights. I don't know my rights. I don't know my rights. As soon as the trooper got up there, I don't know my rights. I don't know my rights. I need to get out of the car. I don't know my rights. I don't know my rights. I'm placing your rights. 
under us. I don't know my rights. It just kept going on. Now. But the trooper had a really clever idea that he came up with kind of on the spot, kind of made up his own impromptu SFST, which I thought was very clever. And what he did, he's like, he placed the guy under arrest and he told Mario, I need you to move your left foot three inches to the right and your right foot three inches to the right. And just kind of gave him these little, little instructions as he was cuffing him and processing him. And he made note of it, of any little instruction he gave the guy, I need you to do this thing for me. Not in the context of an SFST, but I need you to do these things for me. You know, back to the car, stand here, face this way. What, like kind of like Simon says. And he made note of it. And he's like, well, I don't have the test, but I've got all this other stuff. And he was really excited about it. I'm like, that's awesome. You know, we got through a hearing and did fine. And the trial, he ended up getting, getting it impaired. You know, it was a little thing, and you, you just have to expand upon that, because when you look at the, the whole context of a DWI, if you've ever done a ride-along, they are with that person for a long time. It's not over in a minute. It's, it's 30, 40, 50, an hour and a half. And if they're making little observations, you can still get there, describing their coordination, describing the way they speak, but it's going to be a bigger lift on your officer to establish that stuff. The other thing that's really critical in, in this context and any context is operation. How bad was the operation? How many traffic infractions were there before they stopped them? Is this a one-off cross the center line and they pulled them over immediately? How long were they following them? How many tickets could they have wrote them for? How long was it, you know, knowing where they were coming from and where they ended up stopped, how long were they driving before they made, you know, some traffic infractions? So, you know, if it's the bars here and within a tenth of a mile, your officers are behind them and he sees two traffic infractions, that's really good. If your officer is following him for five miles before he finds a single infraction and pulls him over, that's a tougher case because your defense attorney is rightfully going to argue the standard is substantially impaired such that they're not able to operate a motor vehicle as a reasonable and prudent driver. This guy operated as a reasonable, prudent driver. For five miles, he did nothing wrong. He crossed the center line once. We've all done it. That's not intoxicated. That's going to resonate with the jury. And you, you got to know, hey, this, this is going to be tough. But if it's in that short time period, you've got two, now you're going somewhere. But you've got to ask your officer those probing questions about the operation, how they pulled over when they stopped, they try and get out of the car right away, those types of things. So one thing I think that is really important is to make sure that as prosecutors, you are not only asking the right questions, but asking them of your officers in particular in the right way. So what do I mean by that? For example, officers will often tell you that the defendant did not make any statements because he did not make a formal statement. Then later you look at the booking video or the body cam or whatever, and the defendant is singing and waving his arms around. Make sure you say, okay, so they didn't make any formal statements. Did he comment at all? Was he making any noise? Did he say anything even unrelated to the case? How was he acting? Get all of that information from your officers and also it is almost a subconscious way to sort of train them that if they didn't ask those things last time, maybe they will next time without sort of rather than taking the approach of, for example, you see the booking video and, you know, you called the officer and you're like, what the heck? How come you didn't tell me about this? You know, this is really important now. Blah blah. blah. 
you know, use it as sort of like a training point or a learning tool. Right. I mean, I run into a number of officers who used to think that if they put the defendant's statements in the incident report or the narrative, that that satisfied the 7-10-30 notice. No, right. it doesn't work. But you take that one step further removed and it's it's this context. It's all the things the defendant's saying that they don't put in there. And what I'm seeing now a lot, and I'm sure others are with body-worn cameras, is I'm getting 7-10-30 notices that just reference a body-worn camera with no summary of the statements. Now, that's sufficient to get the recording in. It's not sufficient to satisfy the non-hearsay allegations that are necessary for a facially sufficient accusatory instrument, but it gets them in. But still, what does that mean? It means you don't know what they said. You, I mean, you need to watch the video, but you don't know what's there. So you got to spend three or four hours watching these things before you know it, which you should do. But when you're initially screening a case and you want to talk to the officer shortly after it happened, you're not able to do that without spending a lot of upfront investment on that part of it. So also training them, hey, throw the, can you throw the good bits in there? I'm still going to watch the video. But, you know, it's nice for the judge to see that. It's nice for the defendant to see that with their attorney. It may resolve the case quicker when you put, you know, defendant was singing the Star Spangled Banner at 2.30 in the morning while I was processing them. I, I like that. You can give me that little bit. And you usually will get the crazy stuff but not the more discreet stuff. So training them that you want that is really, uh, you, you got to ask, because if you don't ask and it's not an incident report, you may have a great statement um, that's going to help you later on that you'll never be able to use because you didn't notice it. And, and frequently what officers say, well, he didn't say anything incriminating. Well, yet, right? He said things, right? And they may be helpful to my case later. We just don't know it yet. Yeah, and that's a great point that we always want to make sure that we're encouraging them to give us the all of the information and not to make that call themselves. And that can get really tricky depending on your jurisdiction because in some jurisdictions, you know, the cops are the ones writing everything up. So it gets to be this like very kind of tricky interplay. But the other way to sort of approach that, too, is to say to them, you know, yes, they may not have said anything that was per se incriminating. However, you know, what they said may, you know, help me demonstrate, you know, that they were drunk, that they were the operator, that they this, that, you know, fill in some other piece of the story. So kind of try to frame it, you know, in a sense of like, I really need you to give me all the information I need to give the full picture to the jury, as opposed to, you know, every case I need you to get this, 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 and this, they're never going to do it. Right. And it, and it also really comes into play with those, not necessarily like exculpatory statements, but the the statements that would appear to be irrelevant at the time they're being made. And they can be yes. really helpful to confront defenses that they may try and raise. You know, at the hearing, you know, the defense may say, well, he, you know, there's this and this. And this. Well, well, that conflicts with what he said. So you want to say that his sister dropped them off and that he never drove the car. And we're kind of moving away from the standard stop type case. But, you know, he didn't. Well, you got an operation case. Well, so-and-so drove the car. Well, that's funny. You want He's saying he's telling you his sister drove the car and dropped them off. But he told the officer it was his brother-in-law. So go ahead and throw both of those at the wall and see what fits. Or is my is the jury more likely to believe my police officer that it was 
your client who was driving the car because now they've got given conflicting statements. And that's what they often fail to appreciate is how something that's irrelevant now can later conflict with something that comes up later, especially if a defendant testifies or if they call any witnesses, anything can be helpful at that point. And it can be extremely important in a DWI case because a lot of your witnesses are going to be friends and family of your defendant. So, for example, if you have a defendant who the first thing he says when the officer says get out of the car or whatever is don't tell my wife. And then the wife is giving a statement that he was stone cold sober when he left her two hours prior. That subtlety may be totally lost at the time, but, you know, as the DA said, come up and be incredibly relevant later. So always be aware of those things. Exactly. And and this, you know, comes back to that there's a lot of repeat in this, but like, where was the person drinking? You know, friends and family who are there. You don't know what value may be exculpatory when it's first made, but it then may turn to later conflict with something else that comes up, something else they try to put on. Something that I frequently see ignored are passengers. They are very infrequently interviewed and deposed, and they should be every time. Absolutely. Where were you coming from? Where were you going? What were you drinking? What were you smoking? What, whatever it was, any, anything that they will tell you, again, separated and interviewed like you should in any case, if they do that, you are now locking them in. And, and police often fail to appreciate the benefit of getting somebody on paper early because then they can't change their story after the fact. Or if they want to go, oh, I was drunk. I didn't know. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. You were drunk then, and now your story is completely different from what you gave before. I'm fine with that. But locking them in is huge, particularly in the context of someone who's going to refuse everything. You want to do as best you can and don't ignore your jury charges. I think there's a strong argument to be made for a consciousness of guilt charge. You're going to get the refusal charge. Ask for the consciousness of guilt charge, too, from your jury. Bring a motion and eliminate. Um, it's also a much better charge, in my humble opinion. It, it is. Than I mean, a refusal one. Yeah, but if you put those two things together and you do it in a motion and eliminate, and then you know when you're prepping your opening statement, when you're working on your voir dire questions, when you're working on your closing argument, you're able to write those things out well in advance instead of hoping the morning of the trial that you're going to get a good ruling. Now you're, you're developing that right away. And that may also help get a plea on a case. You just don't know. So the other type of case, which kind of follows this, is your combative suspect. And, you know, generally speaking, I'm seeing a lot more refusals, a lot more uncooperative defendants, combative defendants. I think that is only going to continue to be the trend. Uh, I don't know the statistics, if they're actually going up across the state. Just colloquially, from my experience, uh, I see more and more of them. So this is no test, no BBD, no blood, and the defendant is a raging jerk with your law enforcement, which I actually think is a better case than the guy who just says, I'm not taking any of your tests, because most people don't behave like raging lunatics when they deal with law enforcement unless they're under the influence of some alcohol or something else potentially. So I think that helps, again, Sounding like a broken drum, it's observations. Body camera is great for this because no matter how well an officer tries to articulate, nothing really captures an aggressive person like a video. 
So if you have it, that's awesome. But your officer's still talking to them. They're still observing them. And something that's really important to develop with your police officers and talk to them about this is to emphasize the difference between the officer's behavior and the suspect's. Officer, professional, composed, calm. Suspect, out of control, loud, and aggressive. If that continues to be their behaviors throughout the interaction, your police officer has a ton of credibility with your witnesses. And even with most defense attorneys, they look, man, I don't know how that cop kept together, right? I've heard that. I'd have, I'd have lost it on that guy, right? Your juror's going to be thinking the same thing. So make sure they know that. Like, one, it's your job to be professional, but two, it pays dividends. Again, operation is key. Focus on the driving if you don't have tests. Focus on the extreme nature of the behavior. Finding your civilian witnesses, your passengers, your consciousness of guilt charge, open containers in the car. All those same things come back to play in this. And another thing that you may want to look at is social media. I had a case with a doctor. The last DW was a BWI, didn't stew then. It was a doctor. He was going to lose his license if he got the BWI. So he went to trial. No test, total jerk to the police officers. It took him forever and a week to get him back to the shore. And the question of the defense attorney asked the officer, so you're saying he was uncooperative? Yes. And he was aggressive? Yes. And he was mean? Yes. And, you know, disagreeable? Yes. Well, how do you know he's not just always that way? And the officer said, like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he is just always a jerk. I mean, it was all the guy had to play with, but it was something. But it made me think, well, why not show that this guy is this kind and compassionate person when he's not drunk and he's a complete lunatic when he is? And look at his social media. Look at the way he speaks to people. See if there's videos of him, if he does Instagram or she does Instagram. And you can see them as they normally are and contrast that with how they were that night. Now, you're going to have to make a motion to get that stuff in, but you should be able to get it in. It's proof of intoxication, I think, and it's an argument you should try for. And that could be really compelling in a case where you have nothing else. How do we know they're intoxicated? Well, look at them that night and look at them the night before when they were leaving church. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it also is good to remind yourself and your police officers that body cam is amazing, but it is also only giving you one angle. Mm -hmm. So if there's a lot going on that's not shown on the body cam, for example, there's other civilians around, there's, you know, we've all seen the videos of different police incidents, you know, there's often a lot of other activity. If that's relevant to the interaction and to the police officer's behavior and whatnot, you know, have them talk about it because that can also be helpful in building their credibility as well. And then also showing not only were they managing, you know, this combative suspect, but they were also dealing with an angry crowd that was filming them and yelling at them or whatever the case may be and trying to, you know, make sure that those that were injured were being taken care of in the appropriate order, et cetera. Exactly. And sometimes that can cut the other way too. Like I, I had a DWI and I legitimately felt just a little bad. And if you know me, I don't frequently feel bad for suspects. But she got pulled over right in front of her parents' house. And once the officer got her out of her car, her mom and her dad came out, and she was a younger woman. Her boyfriend was in the car, and she got put through all the SFSTs in front of her whole family. Her dad was being very aggressive with the police officer. She was very apologetic to the police officer, telling, Dad, please go in the house. Mom, can you please get to 
And you, you felt bad for her by the end of it because she wasn't being combative, but there were a lot of combative people around. And the officer did a great job of handling the situation. But sometimes that's going to cut against you. Geez, how would I do under that circumstance? How would I feel? And it was dead of winter, cold as all heck, and, you know, the southern tier here. And to go through all of that uh, was a lot. And you may, it's okay to have some sympathy for people and to, because your jury's going to, if your heartstrings are tug a little bit, your jury's going to be as well. I mean, that ultimately went to trial, but I don't know why the defense attorney waived jury, went bench, and the judge convicted her. But with a jury, that was a tougher case, I thought, uh, really did, uh, because I could see a jury feeling bad for her. Now, she did start, I think she was going up throughout the night and started hitting on the officer as he was processing her, which didn't help her cause much. But, so the boyfriend uh, appreciated that. Well, he didn't hear it. He, he wasn't in the car at that point. But, you know, this was a much older case, but they didn't have body cam, but they had mics on their person that would record it. So... You could hear her flirting with the police officer after he's giving her a ride home about how she likes handcuffs. And it was it was quite beneficial to the case. But, you know, if there wasn't that audio, he completely forgot that she said that. So if I didn't have the audio and didn't have a notice of it, I never would have got that. And that, you know, that was something that, you know, again, you get to argue the mental component of your intoxication charge. The mental component is just like the physical and someone who's impaired mentally is probably not flirting with a police officer who's placed them under arrest. Well, maybe they are, but you get to argue that. <laughs> I don't know about that one, but it does remind me that that's another thing to keep in mind. As many cases, you know, as we all have and manage, you know, the officers also have a huge caseload and they are often reviewing these cases under far less ideal conditions than we are, you know, in our offices. So make sure you are reviewing everything and using those little prompts to get the information, you know, look at the file, find something unique like that and say, oh, okay, so do you remember this defendant? This is the one who made the, you know, the explicit comments to you about the handcuffs. That'll jog their memory and you may get additional valuable information that way. Yeah, and the one thing that should come clear for this, although the idea of this is to help you make your DWIs better, it is not to make them easier. Like nothing about this is easy for you or easy for law enforcement, but this job isn't easy and there are no shortcuts. There's no substitute for hard work. And if you want to be good, if you care about being good, you're going to go a little bit further in every case. And you may do it incrementally and start implementing some of these things, you know, one piece at a time and start, you know, because that was how it happened for me. It was, I didn't do all this at once. I had to get my teeth kicked on on pretty much every one of these things to say, oh, maybe I should do that. Or, oh, maybe I should do this. And then it builds and it progresses. And it's going to be the same for your police officers. And as long as they truly feel like they're on that journey with you, that you're learning together and that you both have the desire to do better, um, they're going to come along for that ride with you. Not all of them, but most of them. And it comes down to your, you know, your respect for them and your reputation with them that you're going to put in the work too. Your willingness, not just on this case, but in other cases to be there for them, but it's work. So if you say, well, that sounds like a lot of work. Well, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, no, none of, <laughs> the, none of these are shortcuts. That's, yeah, that's for sure. The, 
But the idea is, is if you are trained to do it this way and your officers are trained to do it this way on your standard DWIs, on any you know misdemeanor DWIs, on your felony DWIs, when you get that DWI that causes the death or serious injury to somebody else, all this stuff is second nature. It is ingrained in you and your trial prep. It's ingrained in your officer and his investigation. It's not that it's not about this DWI. It's about the next one and the one that comes after that. And if you have that perspective that I'm getting ready for that call at three o'clock in the morning when someone's dead, and if you approach every case as a primer for that experience and your officers do the same way, it'll help motivate you a little more. Like, yeah, this is a lot of work and this seems silly to do on a first offense DWI where they're a 1-1. Well, you may not do it on the 1-1, but you should be doing it on anything above that or anything that you think is going to go. Just don't take it for granted that just because this time someone died, that it doesn't mean the next time someone won't. So you approach it that way, you should have enough motivation for yourself and your officers to put in that little bit extra work on every case and then gradually build on that. So you're not asking for everything from them all at once. Like, hey, on the next one, do you think you can pay attention to this thing? And then the following one, you're just kind of gradually building that up. So it's it's an incremental change. So you don't notice it as much and they don't notice it as much. And you're just gradually together, putting together better and better and better and better cases. So before we wrap up today, DA, I think there was one more thing we wanted to talk about, which is we've talked a lot about the defendant who, you know, doesn't say much or is combative. But what about a defendant that actually is silent and doesn't? sing or dance or make any statements. Any tips for that? Because if you don't have, you know, SFSTs, a blood test or a PBT breathalyzer, how are you going to make that case? So it's still a lot of the same things. So just because they're not talking doesn't mean they're not doing something, right? Are they nonverbal or are they like comatose, like just frozen in place and not doing anything? And the officer literally has to remove them from the car. You know, those present difficulties from the initial perspective of just getting through your divorce standards. Does the officer even have enough to get him out of the car if he's never talked to them? So you're really going to have to work with the officer on something like that. Like, well, why did you ask him to get out? Did you just ask him to get out because he wouldn't talk to you? Or did you see or smell something that led you to believe that this person was intoxicated? You know, and that Comes back to operation. Do you have a crash? How bad's your operation? How long was the operation? And then it comes back to those other things. Do you have civilian witnesses? Finding out where they're drinking from. Are there cameras there? Is there a passenger in the car? Looking at their social media. Is this someone who's an SJW who wants to be combative with law enforcement from a moral perspective that they feel like they have to? fight law enforcement or be non-compliant with them. So this is the type of person they're never going to talk to police. They may not help you so much, but you may find something on social media. Looking through the car, what is in the car, looking for receipts, where they were, you get a consciousness of guilt charge. You know, you're not always going to have opens in there. But even if they're not talking, getting the officer to describe the way they behave in any way to behave. Because if they've arrested them, if it's on your desk and they're under arrest, they spent time with them. How were they sitting? Were they slouching? Were they leaning on something? As they walked them into the station, how was their coordination? I mean, it's a bigger lift 
But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself the question, does someone who says nothing and re refuses all tests, are they entitled to a dismissal every time? Or are you going to go down swinging? And if you're going to go down swinging, like you should, in my opinion, you've got to ask your police officers. And they're probably going to call you on this case at 2.30 in the morning. Like, what do you want me to do? I got this guy. He's not saying anything. Use that as an opportunity to ask all these questions. And then it's going to come down to really how hard does that officer want to work on this? Like, if he's willing to put in the work and he knows you're willing to put in the work for the trial, run with it. You know, it's not going to be great. It's not going to be pretty. Again, this is, you know, what I've termed the shit show. I mean, it's a shit show. Be ready. Embrace the show, guys. Have fun with it because it's a DWI and they're fun. Your witnesses are police officers. They're fun witnesses. They call you back when you call them, hopefully. You and call if they them don't, back. You should probably do something about that. Well, and you should be calling them back when they call you too. And that, swing, that door swings both ways. But it depends on the case. You know, you can do location data, you can do a search warrant on a cell phone, you know, if your officer can articulate. There's going to be good stuff there. But are you going to do search warrants on every DWI? No. Who is this person? Is it their six DWI? Did they have a near miss and almost run over somebody? You know, assess it. How how great a risk does this person pose to society? And, you know, the sky's the limit to how hard you want to work, what evidence you want to get. And search warrants for cell phones and cell tower data, location data, text messages, photos, social media. I mean, those are a whole nother topic, but they're all there. They're all options. If someone's driving a car and suspected to be intoxicated, you have, in my opinion, probable cause to believe that there's evidence supporting that on their their devices. Because it shows where they were going, where they were coming from. That's evidence of operation. Yeah, absolutely. And now, I mean, everyone's essentially carrying around multiple electronic devices in one. And then not to mention the car. That's an entirely different topic. The infotainment centers and a lot of the newer vehicles are incredibly They're helpful. difficult to get through, though. They are. You're not always going to get through. It's better slowly, like the cell yeah. phones, you know? But it's always going to be a challenge, though, because the technology's always got to play catch up. That's right. And, you know, subpoenas and search warrants are your friends. You can get a lot of info from a subpoena, a lot yes. of info from a search warrant. you got to size up when you're going to do it, but it's an option. Absolutely. And just a quick thought before we wrap up with final thoughts. I know we're going to come back and talk about cases with crashes another time. So definitely tune in for that. But also keep in mind that when you are doing this extra legwork in the investigation stage or even at trial, you are also creating a much better record on appeal. And as someone who just recently argued a depraved murder a vehicular case, any and all details that you can get are going to be crucial because these cases literally can come down to a fact. Mm -hmm. um, and not even an incredibly important fact. So keep that in mind that this work is not for nothing and it can pay dividends in the long run. DA, any final thoughts before we wrap up? You're absolutely right. It's the small details that matter in every stage of the case and there's no way to get around it. You've got to get through it. You've got to work through it and it'll pay off in the end. You'll be better for it. Your reputation will be stellar because of it. Defense attorneys will fear you and they'll tell their clients to plead because they don't want to mess with you and cops are going to respect you and they're going to work harder for it. And all those things are true. That's not 
That's not fantasy. That's not fantasy. That's that's <laughs> sounds the like it might be someday. No, that's the truth, but that's not something that happens overnight. Well, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to talking with you about crashes next time and possibly on uh, some drug driving, which is a whole additional thorny topic. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.